The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the seventh chapter. Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They said, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. We live in a time and a place in which word games are popular to be played in public discourse. People mess around with language a lot. They change definitions of words. They invent new words that we ought to learn, words we ought to use if we are not to offend certain parties. Think about the parable, or not the parable, but the healing miracle, rather, from Mark's Gospel lesson this morning. In the church, we used to call this man the deaf-mute. It's what he was. He was deaf and mute. He couldn't hear and he couldn't speak and just that was the old way of what you would call him. It was descriptive, of course, but to modern sensibilities, well, that's offensive. You can't call somebody a deaf mute who can't hear and can't speak. What a stigma you're attaching to them. Now, you must call him hearing impaired. That is the term we must use. And if he can't speak, you say he has a speech impediment. He's not mute. He just can't speak the same as everybody else. Of course, the result or the aims when people try and do things like this is that there's less of a stigma about it. You're not separating this person into being someone who's other, someone who's different. You don't want him to feel that way, to feel bad. But also, even this. You want to create a sense of normalcy about it. There's nothing wrong with him, we are told. He is just a little different than you and I. His ears don't work the same way. His tongue does not work as yours and eyes, eyes, ours does. And of course, you give him legitimacy and in the end with the aim that his self-esteem, the idol of our age, that self-esteem is preserved and he doesn't feel bad about himself because he can't hear and can't speak. We do all this with language, with things like deaf-mutes and other things, but no matter what we change the term to, no matter how good we are at policing our own speech, making sure we're saying the things that we're now supposed to say and call people who have these problems, well, that's just it. The problems still remain. You can call them whatever you want, but the person who is deaf and mute is still deaf and mute at the end of the day, regardless of what you call him. Folks that come to Calvary, Lutheran, and Watsika, I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and guess that we're not quite as taken in by the politically correct culture of our day and age as many people are. Sure, to a degree, all of us have to jump through the hoops if we want to keep our job or get a promotion for certain things. But for the most part, we don't think in these PC terms that we must say the right thing and hop on board to the newest definition. But there are words, though, that I would say this, we are tempted to play word games with. There are things that we here in this room, I do believe, find ourselves tempted to play.
play around with words and their definitions, what they mean, what we call things. And the biggest one of those is sin. Sin. There's a temptation for us not to call a sin what God calls a sin. A temptation for us to take something that is clearly prohibited by God's word and say, well, no, it's actually not prohibited. It's not a sin. It's not wrong. It is a choice, a lifestyle. I've heard you know, throughout years, this isn't some conversation I had earlier last week, so don't worry, but just throughout my years, the few that I've had in ministry and even before, people say various variations of, well, everybody does that now, so it's not bad anymore. Or, there are worse things you know, Pastor, than X, Y, or Z. They could be doing A, B, and C. So we should just be grateful that they're not. And, of course, my favorite, well, if you make an issue out of that, you're just going to drive folks away from the church. So how about we just relax on it a little bit? Why don't we just do what everybody else is doing and look the other way? Now, pushes like this, subtle nudges in that direction, they might be successful to a degree. We might be able to get the pastor to stop caring about this particular sin that certainly turns out to be a problem in our community. Maybe the pastor caves and looks the other way. Or maybe, if we're really good about it, we can even go to the district and synod convention and get the Missouri Synod to not look at it the way that we once did. And then so, collectively, as a church body, we no longer call it a sin. If we succeed in doing these things, We've won, haven't we? Well, yes and no. We've won peace on the front end, but we've lost it on the back end. Maybe the deaf mute feels a little bit better by having his status legitimized, by calling him hearing impaired and speech impediment instead of deaf mute. Maybe he feels better about himself. He doesn't just go around feeling down, focusing every day about how he's different from everybody else. But in the end, what? He is still deaf and he is still mute. Those positive feelings that might have come on the front end don't last to the end when he goes to sleep realizing, I can't hear and I can't speak. The same is true when the church redefines sin or tries to do that. In the front end, success. You've eliminated the need for an awkward conversation with a dear friend, a family member whom you love, who is struggling with this sin, or rather, no longer struggling with it. It's not a sin anymore. You don't have to talk about it. You don't have to deal with it. There's no friction in that moment. There's no friction at Thanksgiving when they come and the issue's still kind of there, the elephant in the room. Well, because you've said it's not an issue, therefore it's not an elephant in the room anymore. It's just welcome to sit at the table with the rest of you. On the front end, there is peace. But not on the back end. Not on the back end when finally we stand before the Lord. We can change the definition of a sin, but God does not change his definitions of sin to match what we say is and is not. We work by popular vote, don't we? I mean, living in a democracy, that's just the way things are. And even before there was democracies, there was always public opinion. 
Yes, we work with kind of what is the consensus of the group in the room. But God has never worked that way. Who of us individually or collectively as a group, who can change God's mind about what he says, this is right and this is wrong? How is that possible? Is God fooled? If we take the goalposts and say, well, they're not over here where your word says them, Lord, but they're actually over here, and we're going to abide by that, we want to make sure you abide by it too. A fool's errand, to be sure. The deaf mute and the unrepentant sinner need a better solution than that. They need a better solution than playing word games, changing definitions, and creating language or erasing language to suit the situation. The deaf mute and the unrepentant sinner need Jesus. That is the solution. That is the help for them in their problem. I want to read you a passage. It's not out of the lectionary, but hopefully it's familiar. It's from the book of James. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's an obvious moral that he's getting at here. He's not messing with the doctrine of justification. No, James believes we're saved by grace through faith. But he is saying that words, if they have no effect, if they're just words, well, they are finally without value. Action must be there too. So what is needed more than playing word games, whether it's with some sort of medical problem with somebody or with sin, is the renewing and redeeming power, the renewing and redeeming deeds of Jesus Christ. And thank goodness that that's more than just something that somebody needs, but it's something that they have on the table right in front of them. The power of redemption and renewal in Jesus Christ is a solution that is ever before everyone in this world. The man in the lesson today from Mark had the blessing and that Jesus was standing before him in his ministry and healed him in actuality. He didn't come upon the man that the people brought to him and then turn to the crowd and give a social studies lecture from a junior high class and say, well, you all need to just be more accepting of this man the way that he is. He's no worse or better than you, no. He restored the man to what should have been his factory default. He gave him his hearing. He gave him the ability to speak. He healed him. And he does the same for us, sinners that we are. To the son, the prodigal son that comes back and says, I shouldn't have done this, I was wrong. He doesn't come back and say to his father, you should just accept me and my choices that I made. It wasn't really that bad. There are worse people. No. He comes back and says, Father, forgive me. Make me as one of your hired hands. And what does the Father do? He forgives him. In actuality. He doesn't say, that's okay. I made mistakes when I was young too. Other people did worse than you, son. He acknowledges this a sin. And then he just as quickly forgives it. Wipes it away. He, in actuality, does what needs to be done for that son and his sin, and the same thing he does for us daily, and the same thing he will do for everyone you know in your life, every human being you know that has sin and guilt, 
He will forgive if they come to him, confessing their sins and believing that his blood is an atonement for those sins. So I'm asking you, friends, don't settle for word games. Don't settle for definitions or goalposts to be changed, so that way we can just kind of look the other way and avoid the friction. But only settle for what the Lord gives. Take what the Lord gives. True absolution, true reconciliation, renewal and redemption, because that's what actually fixes the problem at hand. To the Jesus Christ that has done this for us and for all humanity, be all honor, praise, and glory now and forever. Amen.